Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, McRib made its return to Canada today after a 10-year absence. McDonald's is bringing back the sandwich for a limited time only. It's been around since the early 80s. It was just gotten rid of in 86 here, made a brief comeback in 2014, and now it's back again. Somehow it's become the object of love and the target of criticism. We look a bit into its history and we take a bite out of that saucy controversy issue. The first human patient received an implant from the brain chip startup Neuralink on Sunday and is recovering well, according to the company's founder, Elon Musk. If successful, Neuralink says its technology will allow users to operate devices such as a phone using only brain power and could be used to help patients overcome paralysis and a host of neurological conditions. So how does it work? What are the concerns around it? And how soon could it become commonplace if all goes according to plan? Well, this is often referred to as the holy grail of shark science. No images of a newborn great white shark in the wild have ever been captured. That is perhaps until now. A wildlife photographer in California may be the very first, thanks to drone footage of what is thought to be a great white pup captured in July of 2023 off the coast of Santa Barbara. So is it really the holy grail? If so, what does it tell us about the apex predator that so long fascinated and frightened us? But first, the federal government is looking to once again delay an expansion of medical assistance in dying or made to people whose sole underlying condition is mental illness. It comes after provincial premiers and a special parliamentary committee on May told the health minister they are not ready for this expansion. We get reaction from a conservative MP on that special committee and one of the experts that they heard from. Let's begin tonight with a subject that I've been hoping to look into for quite some time now. It's a thorny one, medical assistance in dying. It was first introduced in this country back in 2016, really took effect uh, in 2017. That's the first year for which we have a lot of data. It was expanded in 2021 to remove language around uh, natural death being reasonably foreseeable. So it was expanded to include other people as well. It was meant to be expanded again in March to include people whose sole underlying condition is mental illness. That had already been delayed for a year, and now the federal health minister, Mark Holland, says provinces are telling him they're not ready for the expansion. Based on what he's hearing, he will table legislation shortly to further delay that change. I've talked with health ministers from New Democratic governments, health ministers from a liberal government, a health minister from from Quebec, uh, you know, all of whom say their system isn't ready. So it's not just conservative uh, health ministers that are saying this. Uh, this is, uh, these are every single health minister from every single province, every single territory telling me they're not ready. That is Health Minister, Federal Health Minister Mark Holland. Nearly, as he mentioned, nearly all provinces and territories wrote to him asking that he put an indefinite pause, an indefinite pause on its plans to expand medical assistance in dying to allow them more time to collaborate. Holland said the government also agrees with the Joint Parliamentary Committee report released yesterday that reached the very same conclusion and that assisted death should only be offered to such patients when it can be safely and adequately provided, it said. The minister said the government plans to table a response to that report in the coming days and will ask for more time to implement the change, the expansion. He did not say how much time the government will be asking for beyond the current March deadline. It's clear that we're not ready at this point in time. So looking at, with provinces and territories, what is exactly going to be required to cross that threshold? 
Again, Mark Holland. Now, we reached out to Minister Holland today to see if he'd like to come and explain. He declined our request for an interview. Michael Cooper is the Conservative MP for St. Albert Edmonton. He's the Shadow Minister for Democratic Reform, and he was a member of that special joint committee on medical assistance in dying, and he joins me now. Michael, thank you for your time tonight. Good to be with you, Ben. Perhaps just your reaction uh, initially to the decision by the government to, uh, to seek another extension on this. I think the government had essentially no choice. It would be the height of recklessness for the Liberals to proceed with uh, this radical expansion of made effective uh, March of this year in the face of overwhelming evidence before the special joint committee uh, from leading experts, including leading psychiatrists. And that is that Canada is not ready for made and mental illness. There are many problems with expanding MAID in cases where mental illness is the sole underlying condition, but there are two fundamental clinical issues. Uh, The first is that it is difficult, if not impossible, to accurately predict irremediability. That is a prerequisite of the law, that one must have an irremediable condition. So from that standpoint, it's problematic if you can't predict it. And what that means as well, uh, in terms of what is irremediability, is that it is difficult, if not impossible, to determine whether someone with a mental illness will go on to get better. And what that means is that persons who could get better, who could recover, will have their lives prematurely ended. And that goes without saying is something that is completely unacceptable. Uh, The second clinical issue is that it is difficult for clinicians to accurately assess whether a mate request in the case of someone suffering from a mental illness, a sole mental illness, is a rational request or one motivated by suicidal ideation. And that is underscored by the fact that in 90% of suicide deaths, uh, persons suffer from a diagnosable mental illness. I mean, Michael, that, that is a, something that exists for other conditions as well, presumably, that are applicable to MAID. But w- what did you hear from, from those you spoke to? Because you, the committee spent a fair amount of time speaking to a lot of people who have differing opinions on this. Uh, what rang out to you both for and against uh, the expansion of this? Well, on the question of irremediability, uh, we heard evidence that in as many cases as 50% of the time, a psychiatrist could get it wrong. And so that underscores that moving ahead with made in mental illness uh, cannot be done safely. I mean, if, you're going to, if, if the, the prognosis is going to be wrong 50% of the time, uh, that is uh, incredibly high. That is as uh, is, is good as flipping a coin. I would say more broadly speaking that when it comes to mental illness, what the policy of government should be striving towards is to support and help people with mental illness instead of offering the mentally ill death with MAID. Uh, We're talking about an extension now. I think the government has been uh, pretty tight-lipped about what that extension might look like. What sort of extension would you be looking for? We're calling on the Liberal government to provide for an indefinite extension. And that is what seven out of 10 provincial health ministers called on the Liberals to do today, is to put an indefinite pause on this expansion. The, the approach that the Liberals have taken to this has been 
from the start, nothing short of shambolic. Uh, they made a decision back in 2021 to accept at the 11th hour a Senate amendment to a bill, Bill C-7, to expand made in cases of mental illness. That wasn't the substance of the bill. That was a Senate amendment that they accepted without study, without consultation. They shut down debate, rammed the legislation through, and that set a two-year arbitrary window or timeline for this to take effect. Uh, and then they decided to study the issue. And what they heard from experts was that there were problems, including the difficulty of predicting irreme irremediability. Uh, that led to the chairs of psychiatry at all 17 medical schools in Canada to pen a letter to the Liberals in December of 2022 saying, don't go ahead with this. Uh, so the Liberals then put a pause for one year by at the uh, 11th hour introducing a bill, Bill C-39, that delayed implementation from March of 23 to March of 24. And now one year later, uh, our committee heard exactly the same issues. And lo and behold, the liberals are introducing yet again an 11th hour bill to delay this. So uh, at the end of the day, a one or two or three year delay would be an arbitrary timeline. It wouldn't be based on science. It wouldn't be based on evidence. They need to put a permanent pause on this and uh, engage in broader consultations to determine whether this can ever move ahead and whether it can be done appropriately. A permanent pause sounds like never, though. And, and I think there is, I mean, if you listen to the health minister talk about this, I think there's an acknowledgement that no one is ready. Uh, and they're under fire for waiting again, to, you know, under fire from the from the get-go on this, by the way. And you've been part of that as well. Of course, there was a Quebec Superior Court decision or a Quebec Court decision that sort of prompted the expansion period. And this was tacked on afterwards. You're a lawyer. You know this stuff. Uh, but but is, is a permanent freeze on this, is that never uh, in your eyes? It could be never. Uh, and, and it was a decision when Parliament passed legislation uh, to implement made back in 2016 uh, that death be reasonably foreseeable and that in cases of sole uh, underlying mental health disorders, the persons would not qualify. There are parameters. And the decision that the Liberals made was one that wasn't driven by the courts in the case of mental illness. It was a political decision. And it has resulted in Canada going down a very slippery slope, uh, a slippery slope that uh, many dismissed back when Bill C-14, the original legislation, was passed, in which back then, uh, and I was part of the debate, I sat on the special joint committee at that time, as well as the justice committee that studied that bill, that for most Canadians, the concept of MAID was something in which persons whose death is, happens to be reasonably foreseeable, that were very significant pain uh, and are enduring suffering, would have the uh, option permitting that they have the capacity to consent to end their lives just a little bit sooner to ease their pain. Medical assistance in dying. Expanding MAID in cases where mental illness is the sole underlying disorder, uh, changes made in a fundamental way. One that if we do go forward, in which we would, by the way, be a major international outlier, uh, should be done uh, in a way 
in which there is the utmost caution taken. And unfortunately, the approach of the liberals up until now uh, has not been that. So that's why, as I say, if we do move ahead with this, it has to be done in the right way. Michael Cooper is with us this half hour. He's the Conservative MP for St. Albert Edmonton. He's also a member of the Special Joint Committee on Medical Assistance and Dying. We're talking about uh, the Federal Health Minister, Mark Holland, saying provinces are telling him they're not ready uh, for the expansion of assisted dying to include people with a mental illness as the sole reason for seeking uh, MAID. Um, of course, uh, uh, Michael Cooper was with the committee that also recommended the same delay at this point in time. Uh, Michael, when you look at this, I mean, this is, this is a contentious issue. Uh, there's no two ways about it. When you look at this, do you think ultimately... This is a medical issue, a political issue, or a legal issue? What's your, what's your take? I would submit it's all of the above. From the standpoint of experts, including psychiatrists, there is nothing close to a consensus around the appropriateness. Uh, indeed, if there is something approaching a consensus, it is that this is not safe, this is not appropriate, and it should not move forward, evidenced by the fact that literally all 17 chairs of uh, psychiatry at the medical schools in Canada just a year ago said, put a pause on this. And the leading experts who came before our committee uh, in the past uh, few months as we studied this issue again in advance of the uh, scheduled taking effect of this uh, said, no, don't go ahead with this. Michael, just as, a, as, a, as an individual, uh, you know, when it comes to personal and politics, uh, how do you separate this? I know, I know, I know you're Catholic. Uh, uh, is this a tough one for, for everybody? Is this, I mean, suicide and, and assistance to assisted death is a really touchy to- topic. And I feel like we've entered into it. And it must be difficult even for politicians to kind of find the balance between uh, what they think is right and what may be right. Well, that, that is true. There is a, a moral uh, and ethical dimension to this question, but there is a a broader, more fundamental issue that goes to the heart of can this be done safely? Can it be implemented appropriately? uh, That is clinical in nature. And until those issues can be resolved, it's impossible to reasonably contemplate moving ahead with this type of an expansion. Uh, given the polls, this is a this might be a fair question. If you do form government, does does the party at this point in time do the conservatives have position have a position on what would happen to this aspect of made going forward and uh, made in general? Well, the, the as far as made in general goes, we have the Carter decision and we have a, a made regime. But with respect to this expansion, the position of conservatives has been consistent, and that is for the government to put a permanent pause on this expansion. We believe that persons who are suffering from mental health uh, deserve help uh, and not death through the provision of made. What would you do to, prov- I mean, I think one of the issues at hand here, and I think we're all acutely aware of it, is that there's not enough help out there. There's not a lot of, there's not enough help. Uh, we are in the midst of a mental health crisis in this country. And In the face of that, we have seen many instances of uh, abuse that have been reported involving MAID, in which persons have turned to MAID or been pressured or to have MAID administered because of the social uh, situation or the social conditions that they uh, find themselves in, including uh, poverty, uh, lack of housing, 
uh, among other means. And I, I don't think any, or at least most mainstream Canadians, uh, when, who, who, might have, who might be open to MATE, might support MATE in principle and, and supported uh, the parameters of the Carter decision and Bill C-14, would have envisioned back in 2016 that this is where things would lead to when it comes to MATE. We need to protect the vulnerable and at the same time respect individual autonomy. This legislation tips the balance significantly in a way that undermines the protection of vulnerable persons. Well, it's on pause yet again. Uh, Michael, thank you. Thanks very much, Ben. In the last half hour, we spoke with Conservative MP Michael Cooper about the move by the federal government to delay an expansion of medical assistance in dying or MAID to people whose sole underlying condition is mental illness. Now, this had already been delayed. It was supposed to be uh, expanded in March. It's not going to be at this point in time. Um, The committee that um, that Michael Cooper was on, uh, the Joint Committee investigating this, the Special Joint Committee on Medical Assistance in Dying, uh, recommended to the health minister that they wait. There's also been uh, talk with the premiers of provinces and territories all of whom are demanding a wait as well, some asking for an indefinite pause on this. Again, it was already um, supposed to, it was already going to be delayed until mid-March. And now Mark Holland says provinces are telling him they're not ready for this and he will table legislation soon to further delay the change. Here's what he had to say. I've talked with health ministers from New Democratic governments, health ministers from uh, a liberal government, a health minister uh, from, uh, from Quebec, uh, you know, all of whom say their system isn't ready. So it's not just conservative uh, health ministers that are saying this. Uh, this is, these are every single health minister from every single province, every single territory telling me they're not ready. That is Federal Health Minister Mark Holland. The decision was also prompted by that report from the Special Joint Committee on MAID, uh, which was released yesterday. Michael Cooper, as I mentioned, is a member. We spoke to him earlier. He's what, here's what he had to say about calling for an indefinite delay to this expansion. We're calling on the Liberal government to provide for an indefinite extension. The the approach that the Liberals have taken to this has been nothing short of shambolic. Again, I mean, there's a court decision involved in all this. I I don't know how how to take shambolic in in this context. My next guest is one of the experts that that committee that Michael Cooper was on uh, heard from while working on this report, amongst many, Dr. Sonu Gaind is chief of the Department of of Psychiatry at Sunnybrook Health Science Centre in Toronto, and he joins me now. Dr. Gaind, thanks for your time tonight. Thank you for bringing this important issue to your listeners. Indeed, it is a thorny issue, as we know. Uh, Just your reaction to to this further delay, to this expansion of MAID. Well, you know, I was quite clear when I testified in front of the parliamentary committee that, in my opinion, reviewing the evidence, reviewing our MAID system, reviewing everything about where we're at in Canada, if we had gone ahead with expanding MAID to sole mental illness, as had been planned for March, that would have been the height of irresponsibility. So I'm glad that the report recommended this pause. I'm very appreciative of the government as well to have uh, reconsidered with sober second thought and uh, and reversed course. My previous guest referred to the Liberal government's handling of this as shambolic. I, I get the sense that it's just a very thorny issue. It is a very complex issue, and, you know, there are a range of opinions on this, and I think they all should be heard. So it's not to suggest that only one side of opinions should be heard. 
the problem, I believe, is that up until now, in terms of what has led our expansion policies, that largely has been one um, ideological side driving it. And I think that's one of the lessons we need to learn from this. When you think about it, it's quite remarkable for a country to twice get to the brink of introducing significant, very public national policies, and then take a step back uh, just a few weeks before. And so, again, I have to give credit to the government for taking that step back. It's not easy to do. But we do need to reflect on, you know, how could this happen twice? And in my opinion, it's because there's been, frankly, a bit of an ideological echo chamber that's been driving the policies, so they have not been responding to the complexities that you're referring to. And I'm happy to talk more about those. Indeed. And in this case, it wasn't just the committee that you testified in front of. It was the provincial premiers. Of course, healthcare is a provincial responsibility, although they don't, they're do not they not meant to lead on this, but they're still going to have to carry it out. Uh, and they were all saying, you know, please delay this. Uh, what, what are your concerns? I mean, I, th- I think... I think intellectually people can understand the idea of equality here to some extent. That, and I think this has been spoken about a lot, that someone who's solely suffering from uh, you know, mental illness in a way that they believe doesn't allow them to continue should have the same rights as someone suffering from a physical illness. But it seems that the, you know, all the guidelines around that are far more complicated. What are your concerns on that front? So equality and discrimination also require that we evaluate things for what they are. And if there are significant differences that justify additional concern or caution, we have to listen to those. And if we don't listen to those, that's actually discrimination. So my concerns are this. On a fundamental level, when we're providing death to people who are not dying, because that's what we're doing with MAID when people um, are not at the end of life. So when we're providing death to people who are not dying, We need to be doing it for honest reasons. And for three reasons, I think that fundamentally right now cannot be met if we were to provide MAID for sole mental illness. And the first is embedded in the law. You know, our law is supposed to be that MAID is provided for a medical condition that we can predict will not get better, one that's irremediable. All of the evidence shows that unlike other medical conditions that are a lot more predictable, We cannot make those assessments in cases of mental illness. In fact, we're wrong more than half the time. So more than half the time, an assessor would approve somebody for MAID, telling them you're not going to have gotten better, and they would have. The second issue is unique to mental illnesses, which is only mental illnesses have suicidality as an actual potential diagnostic symptom of the illness itself. No other mental illness, uh, sorry, no other medical conditions have suicidality as diagnostic features. And what the evidence shows is that we do not know how to separate that suicidality fueled by mental illness symptoms from other motivations for psychiatric-made requests. We don't even know if we can make that separation. And when you put those two factors together, the fact that we cannot honestly predict when the person's condition will not get better, and the fact that we cannot honestly filter out suicidality, what we also end up doing is in particular risking the lives of the most vulnerable amongst us. So the people with mental illness who unfortunately 
also have much higher rates of social distress, like poverty and loneliness. And we already know that with our recent expansions, some people are actually getting made um, fueled by that kind of social distress. When you speak of it that way, I get the impression that we're not just a delay away from figuring this out. We're a long way away from figuring this out. I mean, inevitably, there'll be another request for for an, for a for a delay in the expansion. Uh, we don't know how long that's going to be at this point. Uh, presumably, at some point, maybe the courts will get involved here. We don't know. Uh, but what would you think would need to be in place then for this to not be never when it comes to this expansion? So a few things. You know, one is that in addition to providing death for honest reasons that we're saying we're providing it for, as I mentioned, our process for deciding what our policy should be also needs to be an honest process. And by that, I mean, if we are saying, can we safely provide this, that needs to be the question we ask and work on answering. That's never been asked. You know, from day one, when the sunset clause came in in 2021, and that came in after three hours, three hours of debate in the House of Commons. From that point forward, it was predetermined that made for mental illness will be provided. And then all of the work was on, well, how could we do this? So if you never fundamentally ask the question about, well, can we resolve this issue of irremediability? Can we separate suicidality? Is there evidence? Can we ensure we're not providing it for the wrong reasons like social suffering. If you don't ask that question honestly, then how do you know if you can do it? So the first thing would be to see if we actually can have or get evidence that separates out all of those reasons. And then if that evidence exists, then we form policies appropriately. But what you cannot do is say, oh, yes, you know, one year from now, we will know we can do it. That would be like saying, uh, one year from now, we're going to tell uh, every COVID variant to disappear. That's not how it works. I'm sure you've read and heard those who support this expansion. Um, what do you say to those arguments? Because they can be, I mean, certainly the personal stories that you read can be quite compelling. And there are those who believe that, that we're not as far off as you would suggest. Um, what do you say to those who, who argue that this is inevitable and should happen soon? So two things, I think, come to mind. One is that, you know, we, we do have to hear and think about all the personal stories, because at the end of it, all those stories reflect individual Canadians. And we have to think how we as a society can best help them. But we can't form national policy for everyone based on individual stories if we're ignoring that that policy is marginalizing other people or exposing other people to risk of death for other reasons that we would not agree with. So you can't form policy just based on one individual story. You have to think how it's going to affect everyone. And in terms of the people, including some of my colleagues, who frankly are in the minority, but they've had very loud voices, you know, at least by a two-to-one or three-to-one margin, psychiatrists themselves do not support made-for-soul mental illness. They're not the most discriminating people against those who have mental illness. They've spent their lives trying to help them. And that's despite the fact that they're also not conscientious objectors. Most do support made for some circumstances, but not for made-for-mental illness. 
But some of my colleagues have spoken out about, um, you know, how it would be safe to provide it. And I would challenge any of them to actually provide the evidence that shows that because they have not been able to. In fact, even the people who have been most prominent pushing for expansion of made-for-mental illness have literally acknowledged that you can't make accurate predictions of irremediability in mental illness. And they've said, well, that should be a case-by-case decision and an ethical decision in each case. It's fine to make ethical decisions, but we shouldn't pretend that's a medical assessment of irremediability. And, you know, the expert panel, which had initially 10, uh, sorry, 12 members and one-sixth of them resigned, uh, that panel refused to recommend any additional legislative safeguards. And they quite explicitly said that even if MAID and suicide are the same thing in cases of chronic uh, mental illness and suicidality, that society has made a decision to provide that on a case-by-case basis anyways. I don't remember our society making that decision. All I know is that the few people on that panel did. Kasanu Gaines is with us this half hour, Chief of the Department of Psychiatry at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre in Toronto. We're talking about uh, the expansion of MAID to include those whose sole underlying condition is mental illness. That was supposed to uh, take effect in March. It will now be delayed again, according to the Federal Health Minister, Mark Holland, who made that announcement yesterday and expanded on it today. We don't know how long that delay will be. Uh, Premiers, the Conservatives are asking for an indefinite delay. Dr. Gaines has been uh, agreeing that we simply aren't ready yet to uh, for this expansion. Uh, Dr. Gain, I was reading an article that you were actually interviewed for uh, not long ago about just the the huge jump in the number of people accessing medical assistance and dying in this country and just what a an absolute change we've seen since 2017 here, including I think it's a 31% jump uh, in 2022 over 2021, and it's quadrupled since 2017. It's hard to make sense of whether that means this is working or, or we simply don't know. I'm not I'm not intellectually opposed to MAID at all, but these numbers these numbers are eye-catching. Well, I think it's important to note that these numbers are unprecedented in terms of the rate of growth we've had. We've had explosive growth. Um, Health Canada terms it, the, I believe, the growth rate in death rate, uh, but explosive growth, growth in MAID numbers in the few years since we've had MAID laws. And as you point out, it came in in 2016. By 2022, over 4% of all Canadian deaths were by MAID, and that was over 13,000 Canadians. No, No other country has seen that kind of rate of growth anywhere. Some provinces are even higher. So Quebec and B.C. are both uh, higher at about maybe 55 and 6.5%-ish or something like that. And that's from 2022. We would expect the 2023 numbers to be even higher because they've been going up uh, significantly each year. And before getting back to the numbers briefly, because there are other, so separate from those absolute numbers, there are some signals in there that should concern anyone. But I do think that when we see something that hasn't happened anywhere else on the planet, we should reflect on what might be behind that, not making a judgment of whether it's good or bad, but why might it be happening? And we really should understand that before we think, oh, yes, let's go ahead and expand even more. And so a couple of things I want to point out. One is that unlike other places, Canada is unique in not having what's called a due care requirement 
meaning that in every other jurisdiction, there's a requirement that the person has at least had access to standard medical care that could help them and to see if that could help relieve suffering. We do not have that, which is remarkable. And that is something which, when we're talking about potentially expanding to made for sole mental illness, and less than one in three Canadians who has mental illness gets the care they need, you know, what does that mean when people can actually get it? And we also have a very wide leeway of assessors in what they would consider to be appropriate for made, uh, especially since the expansion in 2021. Many assessors are very diligent and very thorough. I have no doubt about that. But you can't rely on that in these situations without having standards, regulations, and legislative safeguards. And we have fewer than other countries. And we've had some assessors who are quite prominent and have provided literally multiple hundreds of made provisions themselves say that if somebody was on a long enough wait list for care, they would consider them eligible for made. So bringing that back to the numbers, you know, I think we do need to reflect that does all of that combined uh, impact this explosive growth overall? And then separate from the overall growth, what we're starting to see emerge are some concerning signals of uh, gender gaps in some situations of made that might reflect, um, you know, issues that should cause us to ask questions about why are more women than men getting made in those circumstances. And we also see over one-third of people saying that being a burden, being perceived as a burden on family or society fueled their made request as the suffering. Almost one in five cite loneliness and over half cite loss of dignity. I, I think we need to understand what's going on here uh, after the last expansion, before we say yes, let's go ahead and expand even more. Yeah, because in this in this sense, I mean, I, I think a lot of Canadians support the no, the notion of made uh, when it happened. But again, it feels like this is one of those programs that has to be constantly reassessed because we need to know where this is. You're putting, in some senses, you're putting the power of life and life and death into these. I mean, literally putting the power of life and death into these decisions. And I respect people's individual right to do this. Uh, but again, if the state is going to be involved in this, there has to be some kind of. It feels like we need to make sure that that we're always paying attention to these to these trends and making sure that the program is doing what we uh, what, what it was intended to do in the first place. You know, and I'm one of the Canadians who actually supported MAID uh, in some situations to the point where I was physician chair of my former hospital's MAID team. I wouldn't have done that if I didn't think there was a role. The role that I thought was appropriate was to help compassionately help relieve end-of-life suffering. And that's been there for many years, and people don't realize that even before the expansion, in 2022, that was quite broad. Even if somebody had up to 10 years left of life to live under the original law, they could get made. And we did see people getting made for things like frailty and age. With the expansion from 2021, it's gone far beyond that. So now, so long as you're an adult, whether you have 20, 30, 40 years left, you can apply for made for any disability. And when that happens, what we start to see is that it's not just end-of-life 
suffering that people seek made to avoid. It is life suffering, meaning social suffering, suffering from social distress and other situations that maybe we should be trying to help people, uh, you know, live a life with dignity before we rush to saying we're going to end your life sooner and provide you a death with dignity. Well, Dr. Gaind, I appreciate your time tonight. Thank you so much. Thank you. And again, uh, I really appreciate that you're bringing a range of views to the public. That's so important in complex debates like this. Shark, we've got a panic on our hands on the 4th of July. Shark! The shark? He's got lifeless eyes, black eyes, like a doll's eyes. You're going to need a bigger boat. I still get chills listening to that. I remember the first time. Of course, I didn't see the Jaws in the theaters because I was too young, but I probably, it was probably one of the first videos I ever got my hands on when uh, we managed to sneak one of the ones we weren't allowed to watch. What a movie that was, but what an impact it had. I think when we talk about Great White Sharks, it's probably that Spielberg 75 horror classic that shaped our collective view uh, of the Great Whites as, as just a ruthless predator. Now, that's not entirely untrue. Of course, Great White Sharks are the largest predatory sharks and responsible for the most fatal shark attacks on humans, but they're also a fascinating species. Uh, And for one that's been around for tens of millions of years, there are still mysteries surrounding it. For example, a newborn great white pup has never been captured in pictures in the wild. Um, That may have changed. That may have changed last summer off the coast of California. Here is wildlife photographer and filmmaker Carlos Gauna describing drone footage he captured in the waters near Santa Barbara on the state's central coast in July of 2023. In California, there is a place where something is happening that may unlock the secret to the greatest shark mystery of all time. There is a gathering of large female white sharks every year. Many may be pregnant. When they leave, they likely are not. It's evident these sharks are here for a reason. This one stayed at the surface, but slowly slid deeper and deeper into the water column. Suddenly, its movements changed. In a burst of speed, the shark exploded ahead and eventually disappeared into the deeper water. Much of filming nature is about patience and luck. It took a little of each to witness what appeared from the depths below. What emerged could possibly change what we know about great white sharks forever. Something very special is happening here, and I guarantee you, nobody has ever seen this before, especially this close. 
There you have it. Isn't that uh, isn't that tempting? Uh, Gona, along with scientist Philip Stearns, have a really compelling case that what was spotted on camera on drone that summer day was indeed a great white shark pup, an achievement referred to often as the holy grail of shark science. You can see his videos, by the way, on YouTube at the Malibu Artist. If you're a shark fan, there's tons of them. Uh, again, he appears to have captured uh, a great white shark pup about five meters long and pure white and unusual coloring as the sharks are white on the bottom and gray on top as they as they age. Uh, so we thought we'd reach out to Carlos to find out more about this. And Carlos Gona, wildlife filmmaker and photographer, joins me now. Thanks for your time. How exciting. Thanks for having me. So this is exciting. How did it uh, how did it come together? What happened uh, last summer? Well, the baby shark footage was kind of a culmination of uh, three, almost four years of observations in a specific area uh, here on the coast of California. And uh, basically, over the years, I've noticed during a, a brief period of time during the summer, these really large uh, pregnant appearing white sharks would appear like clockwork every year at this certain time. It's near a, a shark nursery that's it, it the, the nursery is is not right there, but it's close enough to make me think maybe these white sharks are coming here to give birth. And, and yet, so that's that's yeah. what I did. And yet no one no one has seen this before, right? How how did you go about doing it? How did what was the uh drone I gather? Was it drone footage? Yeah, it was drone footage. And um much like most of my work, if you've seen any of my YouTube videos, uh I like to observe sharks without interfering with them. And the drone is a good means to do that. Uh and I just observe them and through these observations you see sharks do some pretty remarkable things. A lot of things that you don't see like on Shark Week or or on on TV for that matter. Some of those little things that they do that they just make you wonder. They just add more mystery to these animals. It's amazing. They are a very, uh, I mean, Shark Week is a perfect example of how much interest and fascination there is with with sharks and great whites as well. Uh, this has been referred to kind of as the Holy Grail. Uh, why is that? Well, I, I refer it to as a breadcrumb or as a clue to the Holy Grail. The Holy Grail itself of shark research is the birth of a great white shark. So we don't know much about newborns. Actually, no, a newborn has never been photographed in the wild before. And that's exactly what we believe we've photographed here. I had my friend, I call him a colleague because he advises me a lot on um, my observations, Philip Stearns. He's a uh, postdoctoral candidate at UC Riverside. And um he he was there with me that day, and and uh, what we saw before our eyes was pretty incredible. So, what is it that that you saw? I've seen many descriptions of it, but I'd love to hear you describe it. Well, our first impression, and I think we simultaneously said, "Oh my gosh, it's an albino shark!" at the same time. And the reason we thought that is because, despite the name white shark, they are dark on top. They're called white sharks because they're white on bottom. But the cool thing about this shark is that it was white all around. The whole thing was solid white. And as I got close, as I started zooming in and filming the shark up close, you started noticing that that white was actually a film or a, a covering. It looked like some kind of membrane covering the shark. And at the time, we didn't know what it was. But Phil was the first one to say, you might have just filmed the newborn. 
And um, that's when it hit us that it could very well be a newborn. Wow. What? Uh, forgive my my ignorance around the birth of sharks, but how soon after birth would you have spotted this? I mean, how, how quickly would you have had to have spotted this for it to be covered in a membrane, for instance? Well, that's the cool thing about this is that you really can't say how soon after birth it was. You can only kind of speculate, right? Because mm -hmm. we've never seen this before. We've never seen a birth. We don't even know what they look like. But we feel based on the known science of these sharks that this shark was no more than a day old. That's our personal opinion. Um, you know, Phil says, and I, other scientists say it could be, could be hours old, it, it, but regardless of what it is, it is a very, very young shark we've never seen before. Yeah. Uh, YouTube, the Malibu artist, by the way, if you want to go have a look, because there are a ton of great videos there as Thank well. You. What would, um, what does this, I mean, there, there may be other explanations, right? I know this is still sort of to be determined. What else could it possibly be if it's not a newborn? So in our manuscript, we actually go into a second hypothesis of what it could be. And this was presented to us by one of the peer review, um, one of the reviewers, right? And, and that it could be a skin disorder. Now, what the manuscript does is it lays out the observable facts and, and it gives these two hypotheses. It's a newborn or it's a skin disorder. The problem with the latter is that the skin disorder does not account for the unique shape of this shark. So the skin disorder could be an explanation for the white substance on it and what it, whatever it's peeling off. However, ask any shark expert and they'll tell you those round or that round dorsal fin, especially that that's a very, very young shark. It's not a developed dorsal fin. Wow. Uh, what does this, I mean, it's about five feet long. Is that right? So they're pretty big. Obviously they're pretty big at birth too. Well, they, they are big at birth. The interesting thing about this and probably what took the longest is getting the math for sizing the shark. Now, uh, the paper says it's at most five feet long. So it's diff that's, it's, it's, oh. it's different than saying it's five feet long. We went with the conservative highest number we could go with. And that's still well within the, the realms of a newborn at that size. They're, they're born anywhere between four and five feet. Um, and still, that's all kind of estimated because we, we've never seen them born. So that's what's so cool about this. It is. And it's fascinating because it feels like we've, I mean, there's so much we don't know about, about what happens under the water, but it feels like something as popular and as watched as the Great White that at some point, someone somewhere would have captured this. Why are they so elusive when it comes to, comes to, the, to, to the breeding aspect of their lives? Well, there's a few reasons why. One, the ocean is a very hard place to, to do documentary work, to do research. The elements are just, it just makes it hard. Um, the, the second reason is we just, have, we just don't know. We, we don't know where to even begin. Yeah, it's in the water, right? But it's always been thought that they give birth offshore in deep waters. The unique thing about this is that it was in no deeper than 30 feet of water. And, and, and I would estimate looking at the maps of what it is, this was probably in the vicinity of 12 to 15 feet because um, the, the GPS coordinate, the location I'm looking at, that the water is not deep. I, I mean, I've 
taking a boat there and like, we got to get out of here. It's too shallow. It's very shallow. Carlos Gauna is a wildlife filmmaker and photographer. He's speaking to me tonight from California. He's talking about some footage that he captured last summer using a drone uh, that may well be the, the holy grail, as researchers have called it, the first image of a newborn great white shark never before seen in the wild. And he's been explaining uh, why that was um, and, and exactly what it is that he saw. And, and, and the, you know, the best case, the, the best hypothesis is this was a very, very young newborn uh, shark in, in this area. Uh, Carlos, what is this? What does this tell us that we didn't already know about about the great white itself? Well, one, it it's a, a, a breadcrumb. It's kind of a, a clue to where we should maybe start looking for the birth of white sharks. Maybe they're not offshore. Uh, and then in two, hopefully we this opens up the discussion of uh, the importance of these coastal areas in California uh, in, in, you know, conservation uh protecting some of the these regions should be something that is brought up in these conversations because as i say the birthplace of of any creature on this planet is to loosely say a sacred place right and so you know protection of these locations is good but the more we know about where these sharks go why they're born in this particular location if that happens to be where they're born has a lot of implications for uh, future research. You know, sharks are that species. They're, they're the keystone species of the ocean. Um, they're also uh, one of the species that tells us about the general health of the of the ecosystem. So we don't want to disrupt that. If we know where they're born, then that's definitely an area we want to protect. What's left to be done now? You, you've presented the images. You've done your work. This has been published uh, now. Where do you go from here with this one? The thing about science is that it's always evolving. We're always learning, right? So the, the, the road forward is to continue learning. This is a sample size of one. So I'm very hesitant about drawing conclusions about I've found, or in this case, we've found the holy grail, right? It's taken three to four years of observing just to get to this point. I can guarantee you that this year I'm going to be there 24 hours a day during those few weeks because I want to film this again. If if we get a sample size of two, then we're really onto something. Then we can start looking at it. They're possibly, they're, they're seriously born in, in shallow waters and that could be game-changing. Wow. Uh, you've been around the world filming sharks, right? Those, so this is really is a labor of love for you. Yeah, yeah. I I have been uh, quite a quite a few places filming sharks um just recently returned from brazil filming tiger sharks um and then going this weekend to uh san ignacio where i found actually a white uh, not a white shark i found a shark a large one six seven foot shark 13 miles inland so it's amazing what you can see from the air no, absolutely. And in this case, I mean, the great white has often, I think Jaws has a, has a lot to do with this, but the great white has always been sort of perhaps the most feared. When, when you say shark, that's what people think, right? Great white. And it's fascinating to know that we actually don't know everything there is to know about them. Yeah, we don't really know a lot about certain parts of their lives. There's a big void, in, especially in their young portion of their life, right? The the big sharks get all the media attention. They get all the shark week coverage, all of that stuff. We know quite a bit about those sharks. 
because they're, they're big, they're easier to tag, they're easier. I mean, there's satellite tags on them. We know that where they move. What we don't know is these little bitty ones. And so that's, that's kind of my crusade. Wow. So, th- th- so this, what is, what time of year? I, I shouldn't be giving this away. I don't want a, a whole field of, I wouldn't want a whole flotilla of boats out there where you are, but, but, uh, but in broad strokes, uh, when are you heading back out? Well, I was out there yesterday. As a matter of fact, um, I'm out, I'm out along the coast somewhere here in California all the time. Um, I'll be down in San Diego in a couple weeks, but in particular, the time when, when they give birth is in the summer months. Uh, when they come to Southern California to give birth, that is on record. There are there there is um, a lot of good data that shows that the sharks come to Southern California in the summer to give birth, and then they go off to what's called the Shark Cafe in the winter months. Well, Carlos, uh, congratulations! I look forward to uh, hearing more about this, and uh, thanks so much for your time tonight. Thank you so much. The first human patient has received an implant from brain chip startup Neuralink. It happened on Sunday, apparently, according to the company's founder, Elon Musk. You know that name. Uh, The patient is recovering well. Uh, Musk says initial results show promising neuron spike detection. We'll explain what that means. Uh, But here's sort of a synopsis of what this is all about. According to a post on the platform X, a patient received an implant on Sunday and is recovering well. Musk, who owns the interface company Neuralink, didn't provide details. The implant is about the size of a large coin and is designed to be implanted in the skull with ultra-thin wires going directly into the brain. Pennsylvania State University brain researcher Laura Cabrera says the procedure could benefit certain patients. This first trial is more focused on helping those with quadriplegic or people with ALS. Neuralink is one of many groups working on linking the nervous system to computers. There are more than 40 brain-computer interface trials underway. I, Norman Hall. A brave new world. Indeed, Neuralink says its technology will allow users to operate devices such as a phone using only brain power. It could be used to help patients, as was mentioned, overcome such things as paralysis and a host of neurological conditions. Here's how the company explains it. Imagine the joy of connecting with your loved ones, browsing the web, or even playing games using only your thoughts. This is made possible by placing a small, cosmetically invisible implant in a part of your brain that plans movements. The device is designed to interpret your neural activity so you can operate a computer or a smartphone by simply thinking about moving. No wires or physical movement are required. There you have it. So that is, in, in essence, what it is. Uh, joining me now to explain what it does and where we're at with all this is Bradley Greger. He's a neuroscientist and neuroengineer at Arizona State University. Bradley, thanks for your time tonight. Oh, thank you. I'm glad to be here. I gather you've been in much demand today to, exp- to explain this. It, yeah, it's, yeah, it's been a busy day. <laughs> Lots of inquiries. <laughs> So tell me what to make of this news, because again, and because of who it is, obviously, it's Elon Musk, so people pay attention. But just a little bit about what this what this Neuralink is, and how much of a milestone is this? Well, I I think the you know the first in human successful implant. It's a this is a big deal, um, and you know it's very early, and we don't know a whole lot yet. But the fact that the implant went successfully and the device is working and they're actually getting data, they're getting you know information out of this patient's brain, uh, is very exciting and very encouraging. 
Tell me a bit about the technology, because as was mentioned in that report, uh, certainly Neuralink are not the only ones exploring these the uses of this. Uh, but what is it and how does it work? Well, it's basically a, a, a set of very fine electrodes about the, the size of a human hair. So you can really just think about, about it as a very tiny wire um, that gets implanted in the brain and then can monitor and record the electrical activity in the brain. And then the the real technology kind of breakthrough or one of the components of the technology breakthrough is that they then can wirelessly transmit that data from the the patient to, you know, a device, a computer or a phone or anything that can interact with that uh, that information. Right. So, so what's implanted is obviously too small to do that on its own. You need another, it needs to be transmitting to another device to make that happen. Exactly. The the. The, the part that's implanted in the patient is, is really just a recording and then transmitting device. And then it'll be some, you know, a computer that is talking to the, the patient is the, what the patient will control then. Um, you could really think about it very simplistic, simplistically. It's like the Bluetooth, like between your phone and your car or something like that. It's you know, much more complicated than that, but it's the same concept. Right. Uh, Elon Musk said it was showed promising neuron spike detection. Sounds very, sounds very scientific. What does it mean? Well, the, the spike is what they're talking about. There. That's the kind of the jargon in neuroscience that we use for referring to the electrical discharge of a neuron in the brain. And the brain is composed of billions and billions of cells called neurons. And they talk to each other through electricity and they do a little discharge. It looks like a little spike uh, when you record it. And each of those little spikes is a bit of information in the brain. Um, and so even as I'm talking to you here, you know, you could theoretically, and, and Neuralink is doing this now, tap into the neurons in my brain that are controlling my mouth and my lips and my tongue and producing the speech and, and actually decode what I'm saying without actually listening to my words. You could just go straight out of my brain to a computer. Wow. Where do you see this? I mean, I think the, uh, the company itself was explaining how this could be used for people who's, who, who have paralysis or other um, neurological diseases that limit movement and so on. But where do you see, I mean, where do you see this being used broadly? Well, I think, you know, the first place, and this is where my research is all at, is, you know, treating people who are paralyzed or who have blindness, um, you know, there's some sort of sensory or motor uh, disorder that this could help with. And this is where I think we'll see the big first applications where somebody who, you know, is completely paralyzed or completely blind could use this device to control a computer, control their environment, uh, control a robotic arm to feed themselves and care for themselves. Or in the case of a blind person, you can kind of do the reverse process where you hook the device to a, a, a video camera and then stimulate the parts of the brain that process vision and give them a, you know, a limited seeing. So instead of being completely you know, dark or black all the time, you know, with no light sensation at all, they could perceive their environment. They'd be enable them to walk around and navigate um, without assistance, which would be you know, a huge breakthrough. Um, yeah. So those, I think, are going to be the, the near-term applications. Remarkable. So in other words, you bypass what is now limited in the, the body's ability to react to those neurons. You simply bypass it by reading the neurons directly. Exactly. It's, you really are like, because the, the, you know, the most obvious is one of somebody who's had a very serious spinal cord injury, injury. So they're paralyzed and the brain's still fully functional. It just can't talk to the muscles. 
But this device would allow you to go straight to the parts of the brain that typically talk to your arms and your legs and your hands and get that information out and use it to control, say, a robotic arm or a computer. Um, and that w- that's really, I think that'll happen very soon if these devices, you know, function as they, uh, as I think they will. Um, but I'll tell you, the real obstacle here, this is what I'm really keeping an eye on, is the longevity. How long does it last? Um, previous technologies have kind of demonstrated this is possible, but they tend to not last for more than a year or two, um, just because of the it's you know kind of older technology and it's bigger. Um, and what Neuralink has done through using these very fine, small, um, flexible wires is will likely improve the longevity where it could go decades, hopefully. And that's sort of so. This is what I want to say. I want to see where this patient is a year or two from now. Um, and if it's still going strong, that's going to be changed like the whole landscape here. Well, I think what caught a lot of people who don't pay, maybe like you know, such as myself, who don't pay rapt attention to this to this space, was that they had already been approved for human testing, right? It feels like that is a that is a big step along the way towards these things. And how would that have happened in this case? Well, they they did. It's the standard process for um, any kind of medical device. And there are lots of very similar devices that have been through the same process. I mean, the obvious ones you think about, like a cardiac pacemaker, or there's a device that uh, some people may have heard of that's called a deep brain stimulator um, that's used to help people with Parkinson's disease. And these are devices that have been around for 30, 40, 50 years. And so Neuralink just went through that same process with the Federal uh, Drug Administration here. Uh, to get it approved to do a, what they call basically like, I would think of this like a feasibility trial. It's a very small number of patients just to check that the device will kind of work and that it has promise, and then that will lead into larger trials. Right. So if it's FDA, then it must be fairly well. I mean, obviously it's well-regulated, right? This is something that that these oh. are the steps that one goes, yeah. Yeah, they've been through the ringer on this. I've, you know, I've worked with the FDA, and it's a fabulous organization. But yes, they scrutinize you. <laughs> there is no uh, easy way through this. Um, but this is why I'm kind of excited about this technology being backed by Neuralink. A lot of researchers have, have, have tried this and are interested in it, but there just hasn't been the financial backing that's necessary to really take it through this whole official FDA process and set up a real proper clinical trial like they're doing now. This costs huge amounts of money. Um, so this is where I'm really pleased that Neuralink has stepped up and put the, you know, the financial resources behind this to get it done. Bradley Greger is with us this half hour, neuroscientist and neural engineer at Arizona State University. You may have seen this news today. It's been about everywhere because it involves Elon Musk. He has a startup called Neuralink, and they apparently even planted a brain chip in a person for the very first time. This is the first uh, human patient to receive this uh, brain chip. They had done some testing on animals beforehand or for several years, actually. Uh, now, this happened on Sunday. According to Musk, uh, the patient is recovering well. We've been talking about what this does. It essentially allows um, it allows the people, for instance, with neurological disorders or paralysis, to be able to move things just using their brain. In other words, it bypasses uh, the parts of the body that are no longer respond to the neurons in the brain and then allows for a certain amount of movement. For instance, you could dial a phone, you could make things work essentially just by uh, the electric pulses in your brain. I know this, I know, uh, Bradley, that is not a scientific way of putting this. Um, what are some of the challenges here and some of the concerns around this technology? You mentioned one earlier, which is the longevity. I guess that's really uh, the Achilles heel here. It's just how long can these devices last? Yeah, and that has been historically the real Achilles heel for these devices. 
uh, as if they'll function very well for a year or two, which is great. But for it to be truly something usable for a human in the real world, uh, it, you know, these things need to function for decades. Um, and this is where I think Drillic has really excelled in developing both the technology for their the little electrodes that record the signals, and then also the surgical robotic technology that does the implantation. Um, it's really quite remarkable. The, the robot actually identifies where there are blood vessels in the brain and avoids them. It really can control down to like, I think, below a millimeter sort of precision where they go in the brain. And so they can be implanted in the brain with causing minimal, minimal damage. Um, and that will greatly increase the chances of them lasting for decades. Uh, and then also they're flexible. So they, they can kind of move and float with the brain, and that will enhance their longevity as well, that you know, patients will be able to have this device implanted and then have confidence that it'll last for you know, a large portion of their lifespan or maybe hopefully for the whole rest of their life. How, I, I meant to ask you, how big is it? Well, the, the entire device, I think, is, I mean, I've only seen pictures of it. I haven't measured it precisely, mm-hmm. or anything, but it's on, I think it's just like a few centimeters. But right. that part stays outside the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the only part that go, goes into the brain is the little tiny wires, and those are smaller than a human hair. Wow. Um, what do you? What are the concerns then? Because I know there are concerns around this technology. It's it's not quite um, it's not quite mature just yet. What are some of the concerns that exist then about about these technologies? Oh, absolutely. I mean, anytime you're talking about implanting something in the human brain. That's a big deal <laughs> to be done very, very carefully. Um, and I think the concerns, you know, there are some concerns about just the technology itself and its longevity and its, and its usefulness. Um, those can be addressed pretty directly just by engineering. Where I think the discussion is going to go and is kind of going is, you know, the applications of this device. What could it be used for? And could it be used for maybe not so great purposes in some cases? And certainly that's true of any technology. Um, you know, a lot of the things I hear just, you know, buzzed around in social media and stuff are concerns about like mind reading and mind control and that sort of thing. And right. to me, I just think that's impossible. Um, I've been working with these types of devices for decades now. And the only way they work is with the complete cooperation of the person who's using the device. Um, it's just a real good analogy here is to think that the device is just, you know, listening to what you would do. Like if you want to move your hand, you have to move your hand. You think about that, but it can't, you know, if you don't move your hand, nothing's going to happen. And so the, the patient can really just not use the device by not thinking in the way that the device wants to listen. They just stop talking and the device then has nothing. Right. So it's a mind reader, but it's not a mind reader, so to speak. No, not really. Not not only in the sense that, like, you're reading my mind now as I talk to you. You know, that's kind of how it reads minds. Where do, I mean, uh, realistically, because this does sound like such a game changer for people who 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 don't have mobility. It sounds like it could really mm. open up all kinds of new avenues for people with limited mobility or paralysis and so on to rediscover a certain amount of autonomy. And isn't that amazing? How far away do you think we are down the journey to these things uh, actually being out there for, for common use? Yeah. So this is the, you know, the speculating the future is always a little risky because I'm still waiting for like my flying car. They promised me that back in the eighties. Um, sure. But <laughs> um, I would say based on, pretty well-established 
preliminary results and other studies that this device will see these patients controlling devices, robotic arms, computers, probably in the next year or so. Um, the, the, the device is mature enough to that point and the external you know, computer systems and robotic systems are very mature. Um, they just really, this whole, they're working out the, the part where they're doing the surgical implant and very carefully making sure that I'll go safely and that the patient is healthy and recovers well. And then they'll just have years to work with these patients to control these devices and work out all the fine details of the engineering there. But I, I would speculate and I would be pretty confident in this that we'll see patients using this device to control some sort of external device, a robotic arm, computer, phone, something like that, uh, as soon as the next year. I would bet less than a year. Wow. And in terms of, you know, sort of common use, uh, popular use, wow. so to speak? Well, that will, so popular use, I see in the medical realm, it'll be accepted quickly because there's such need there. I mean, the, it's all about the risk benefit. There's, you know, there's a, it's a surgery, so there's a risk there. No, no way, any way you look at it. Um, you know, I think for someone like me, you know, I have complete use of my hands and things like that. So I, I would really not consider getting one of these because if I want to do something, I just do it with my hands. Mm-hmm. If, um, I didn't have use of an arm or I couldn't walk. And now I would really seriously consider it. Um, so I think right. for like common use and medical applications, again, maybe just a, a few years uh, is likely. Right. Well, Bradley, thank you so much for, uh, for shedding some light on this. I know we've been talking about it a lot today, so it's good to understand it. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. It's great being here. Thank you. McDonald's Canada brought back the McRib after a decade-long absence, today, it is back for a limited time. This is not a promotion for the McRib by any stretch of the imagination, but it is a bit of a cultural phenomenon, the old McRib. Uh, I say old because it debuted all the way back in 1982. McDonald's at the time was bas- basking in the glow of the very successful McNugget, and so it introduced a new sandwich also made of restructured meat, this time pork, called the McRib. The idea for it, apparently, and thank you to the Thriller, uh, it's a website, for this history, began back in 1981 when McDonald's CEO Ray Kroc enlisted the same classically trained chef from Luxembourg who had pieced together the McNugget, his name was Rene Arand, to come up with a beef, or call it a burger alternative, right? So legend has it the chef was a big fan of pulled pork sandwiches that he'd had in, I think it was South Carolina. And so he set his sights on recreating something similar. Now, he had a template. A decade earlier, a reconstructed pork patty had been invented in the U.S. Um, and of course, reconstructed goes back. I think the military started this and they used them in MREs, right, those rations. But uh, a pork patty had been invented in 1970, I think. And so they used that as inspiration to build what would become the McRib. Um the chef insisted that the sandwich give off real barbecue vibes. So they, they worked on making it look like a rack of ribs, you know, those grill marks and all. Um, and then they released it. So let's go travel all the way back to the early 1980s. And one of those very first commercials for said McRib. Well, you're fine when you bite into McDonald's McRib sandwich. You'll find McRib in the middle is swimming in sauce. It's McRib. Tender pork on a homestyle bun with pickle and a taste of onion. All meat on the grill all through. Tastes like a no bones barbecue. Good. You deserve a break. 
No bones. It sounds like the coasters. Um, well, needless to say, it was not an instant success. Some people liked it, but in fact, it was sometimes referred to as the McFlop. And so it kind of vanished in the mid-80s. It vanished here in Canada in 1986. It was taken off menus for good. I have a, have a story once of going into a McDonald's and being told unequivocally not to order it by the person behind the counter. Um, well, that's an old story. I've had them before, by the way. Um, so it remains at this point in time. Here we are, 2024, 40 some odd years later. Um, it is one of the most elusive and divisive items on the McDonald's menu. In fact, it may be one of the most elusive and divisive items on any fast food, fast food menu these days. Of course, uh, and forgive the pun, the sandwich has taken its fair share of ribbing over the years, including one on The Simpsons. This is uh, the Krusty Ribwich. Like a rib, it tastes like liberty. Like a rib with a bun of sesame. We start with authentic letter grated meat and process the hell out of it till it's good enough for Krusty. Try my new Krusty Ribwich. Mmm. There you go. Uh, we processed the hell out of it, so to speak. Well, again, it's back after a 10-year hiatus here in uh, in Canada. McDonald's Canada says there was growing demand for it that they say it was difficult to ignore. There's some theory out there about pork prices. Every time pork prices fall, they tend to look at bringing it back on the menu because it becomes more cost-effective. Um, but McDonald's says they received thousands of inquiries on social media from very passionate Canadian McRib fans asking to bring it back here. So they have. Uh, so what makes this sandwich such a, such a lightning rod for fast food lovers? Why does it keep vanishing only to make a comeback? In America, it actually vanishes and returns far more often than it has here. But you can see a bit of a strategy here, a bit of a marketing strategy. In the meantime, of course, let me know your theory of the McRib. Do you like them? No? Yes? one 9898 We've also been asking uh, tonight about other fast food items that have sort of come and gone over the years or have disappeared altogether that you'd like to see come back and we'll mention those as well. one 9898 is the text line. But let's bite into the McRib. Dennis Lee is a staff writer at the food and pop culture website called The Takeout and he joins me now from Chicago. Dennis, thanks for your time tonight. Hi, thank you for having me. This is a remarkable story because, of course, McRib has been gone from Canada now for about a decade, and it's coming back. It came back today. But this is it, it's amazing how much how much passion this one sandwich <laughs> uh, brings out in people. Uh, has it been that way since the get-go? I mean, I remember back sort of when it was introduced, and it kind of fell a bit flat. Yeah, I don't think it's been that way uh, forever. You know, I think based off of what it is and what it represents, like a lot of people are kind of, they've always questioned the McRib <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, it's a boneless pork patty, yet it is somehow shaped like actual ribs with fake bones and stuff imprinted like on top of it. The grill marks. Uh, yeah. The grill marks. <laughs> yeah. Grill marks and like fake, fake bones. And so people, they approach that kind of thing skeptically. Yeah, they certainly did back. I remember in the in the early '80s when it came out because it mm. was at one point I think it was called the McFlop because it just hadn't done very <laughs> hadn't done very well. But uh, and then it was it, then it kind of disappeared, right? I mean, McDonald's sort of decided, okay, well, we have other things we can sell. We don't need to sell this out. Right, and McDonald's actually experiments quite a bit with its menu these days. It's sort of 
I would say is somewhat conservative and is working more on like partnerships with celebrities. But um, when it comes to its food, if you look into its history, McDonald's has sold all sorts of really weird stuff. The pizza always comes to mind, oh, which, yeah. were, which were quite tasty. I remember people driving across country in the U.S. to find the last, the last McDonald's. Yeah, and there is one place that still sells pizza. It's in Orlando, but it's a very one-off McDonald's location. So it serves McDonald's food along with some other stuff like pasta and pizza. It's, oh, wow. It, it's a very odd-sounding place. So, so tell me a bit, a bit about the the ebb and flow of the McRib because I remember it appearing in 1982, and uh, you know it wasn't that well received, and then it kind of vanished, and then it came back, and now it's sort of one of those strange cult items that certain fast food industry places, including here, donut shops, whatever, have, and this has become one of them. Yes, and it's it's one of those things. It it debuted in 1981 um, again as like a limited time item, like you said, it was a flop in some cases, so. There were still some fans of it, um, which has now necessitated sort of that uh, limited time release thing. Uh, here in America, the McRib comes back pretty much every year. So what you'll do, what you'll see is McDonald's will will say that this is the last time it's ever going to be available. This is its farewell tour, and then uh, take it off the menu, and then the next year they'll bring it right back. I've been reading all, I mean, if you look this up on Google, there are just legions of theories about why this is. One of them centers around pork prices, that if the price of pork falls enough, McRib comes back on the menu. Yeah. You know, that's a like a really neat theory, but I feel like that isn't exactly the case. Like, I, obviously, McDonald's won't exactly tell you what their battle plan is behind the McRib. But almost, I feel almost like that one's almost like a conspiracy theory in a way. Yeah, there's a lot of them out there. I, yeah. I was surprised to see that that back in the early 80s, that Ray Kroc had turned to this Luxembourgian chef, which is odd to think of it, um, to make the McNugget. And that he sort of was set out, that was then sent out to make a, a beef product sort of similar to the McNugget and ended up falling in love with pulled pork sandwiches and then came up with the McRib. So it has kind of an interesting history of what is sort of reconstituted meat, right? If you want to call it that, like the McNugget. Yeah, exactly. And that, that chef must have been a reconstituted or restructured meat, as they put it, um, expert in a way, which I think is also like a very specific skill to have. Um, yeah. I've been amused by that. And the McRib, you you bring, bring up his uh, Luxembourgian background but the the mcrib is available there and in germany year round oh really so maybe, yeah maybe it's just a like a nod to yeah, him maybe that would be an interesting theory uh, tell yeah. me a bit so, so so in america the same thing it comes and goes uh mm-hmm. they sort of give it a farewell tour then it vanishes then they're sort of a you know bring it back I mean, apparently yeah. here in canada they were saying mcdonald's were saying they got they get tons of letters about it like please bring it back please bring it back yeah and i really do think there's there's a lot of fans out there of it. It is an unusual sandwich. It's like, you know, when do you see a pork centric sandwich on the menu aside from breakfast? Maybe I'm on radio. I realize, but I, I am a fan. You're a fan. You count yourself more. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's cause it's such an odd spongy texture and you know, most of the flavor comes from like corn syrup and there are fresh ingredients like raw onions on it. And the pickles just sort of kind of go cut through the barbecue sauce a little bit, but it's so simple and so ridiculous. And it's so like hard for me not not to enjoy one or two when it comes out. Yeah, I, I mean, I I'll confess, I don't think I've had one because they weren't available here for a long time, and I, I don't sure. think I've really had one since they were first around way sure. back when. But I do distinctly remember that they had a very odd 
odd consistency. Spongy yes, is probably the right way of putting it. Definitely not a rack of ribs. How's that? Yes, exactly. Not a rack of ribs, but you're also not sure exactly what that is at the same time. You know, it's just little p- bits and pieces. And if you bite into it, I'm sure you can see the little um, chunked up bits, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So that's been the technique then. So, you, I mean, it's to me, it, it, obviously McDonald's has figured out how to market the McRib mm-hmm. and uh, that's what it does. I mean, the decade lapse here in Canada is interesting, but, but obviously this is sort of strategy, right? You bring it back, take it out, bring it back, take it out. Yes. And I guarantee that, you know, with all this chatter online because of the McRib coming back, you know, for the first time in 10 years, which is a really long time to kind of revive something like that, it's going to give McDonald's Canada a pretty good bump in sales is is my guess. Yeah, it, it seems to me that, that that's sort of what's happened now within the fast food industry. They have their sort of mainstays that they don't get rid of. And we have it here with other places, too. And every once in a while, they'll bring back a fan favorite, right? Something that not everyone loves, but enough people want to draw them back into the franchise. Right. And, you know, fast food companies do this kind of stuff all the time. Um, Arby's actually just re-released these potato cakes off its menu that it had taken away, which aren't available in America now. So seeing uh, fast food restaurants kind of like experiment and toy with with people's emotions has always been kind of interesting. Dennis Lee is with us this half hour, staff writer at the Food and Pop Culture website, The Takeout. We're talking about uh, the return of McRib to Canada today. I don't know if you've had one or if you've had one yet. It's been 10 years, apparently, since the McRib graced McDonald's venues here in this country. Although in America, it uh, it has periodic comebacks. It's more frequent, but it also comes and goes. It's not a permanent menu there, item there either. So just tell me, I mean, even within your circle of friends, or I mean, clearly what you do for, for work and so on, uh, tell me a bit about what, what it is about the McRib. I mean, what kind of reaction do you get to it? And why do you think it is one of those things that kind of is a, is a target for both love and hate? Uh, it's because people really like to pan fast food. You know, in, in general, people people like to kind of pick on things. And the McRib seems to be kind of like a weak point where people can constantly chip away at it because of multiple things. You know, it is spongy. It is made of like bits of pork that have been glued back together in some kind of possibly horrific way. Uh, and it's shaped like meat with bones on it. Yeah, uh, the which, fake grill which, marks. The fake grill, right, marks. grill marks. And it's if that idea is so fascinating to people, but then it draws out uh, the skeptics because, like, why would you do that? Why would you take ground pork and then shape it back into a into a pig? Into like, a patty, yeah, <laughs> yeah right. Like, yeah, a patty that is representing an actual like cut of pork, which is really kind of a funny like uh, meta idea. But you know, just the fact that it's fast food is what what's uh, kind of its own weakness. What's interesting, I find, too, is that when it first debuted back in the 80s, there wasn't a whole lot of knowledge, specifically here in Canada, maybe in different parts of Canada, but generally, there wasn't much fandom around barbecue. There wasn't much knowledge around what is good and what is not so good. So it's weird that the McRib has found this new sort of spot in, in the popular in popular culture at a time when just about anybody has been to some kind of rib fest or barbecue thing, and, and, and sort of the quality of their shows on TV, the people's expectations for the quality of barbecue food is much higher now than it was 40 years ago. Sure. And the idea of the McRib being the ambassador to Canada of barbecue styles is incredible to me. (laughs) It's not, thankfully. There are lots of, I think there are lots of barbecue (laughs) places here, but yeah, some people, listen, there, there must be a fair few people out there who's the first bite of rib they ever have is a McRib. Sure. Uh, I don't know 
if that was the case with my parents, because my my parents are immigrants. Right. But it wouldn't surprise me because their idea of Mexican food was Taco Bell. Right. You know, it's it's sort of that kind of like like barbecue by association, but probably just because of the sauce thing. Yeah, I, I, I guess so. In, in America, it comes and goes, as as you mentioned. Uh, do you think that'll be it? I mean, it, it feels like it's never going to come back with any permanency because they've found a way to market this in a way that works for McDonald's, which is get rid of it, create demand, bring it back, get take it away, create demand, bring it back. Yeah, and by now it's sort of like an inside joke for all of us. So, like, we know it's going to go away probably sometime. You know, they bring it back in fall or late fall or early winter. And then it's around for like, you know, six to eight weeks. And then it goes away with McDonald's saying, this is the last time and kind of with a wink, you know, cause we all know it's coming back, you know, in my mind, in terms of uh, food chains that kind of have that sort of thing is like Starbucks and it's uh pumpkin spice latte. Indeed. Indeed. And, another and controversial McRib. one, another. Yes, exactly. And then there's the McRib and, to me, I always kind of herald the holiday season by seeing when the McRib comes out. And then it's like, okay, well, it's time to go Christmas shopping. I can't imagine having a pairing those two, grabbing yourself a pumpkin spice latte and adding a McRib to that meal. That might be something worth trying out. You know what? I live in Chicago. All this stuff is near us. You know, McDonald's corporate headquarters is actually out of Chicago within maybe like half an hour walk of my office where I'm at right now. And so uh, I am sure I'm going to encounter a Starbucks on the way. So next year, maybe you've given me an idea just to sit and have them in the same meal if they're around. That's enough sugar to knock anyone out. I'll wait. I'll wait to see what you think of that combo. Uh, So any last words? I mean, so you're a fan. You're a fan of the McRib. Uh, I suppose, you know, a lot of this fuss just is, you know what, you know what it is in many ways? It's just kind of harmless fun, isn't it? To to, to both love and hate a McDonald's sandwich. Exactly. And. I that's you know, it's not that I buy into it necessarily. I mean, I I study this stuff kind of, you know, exclusively for my job. But at the same time, you know, might as well have fun. It's all to sell. It's all about selling. It's all about, you know, getting that that drum up and that excitement, bringing it back after 10 years in Canada has got to feel like a pretty big deal, you know. I guess so. I, I mean, we'll see whether people. I'm looking forward to seeing how much I'm gonna. You know, I'm looking forward to seeing how much people run to check it out. I, I didn't get a chance today to go have a look because it's just one one of those days. But I will this week. I will head over and see what kind of uh, what kind of demand there is. Dennis, thanks so much. Sure. Thank you for having me. I've always been fascinated by how uh, the language around certain topics, especially ones that elicit a certain amount of uh, argument, evolve over time. And that's really true of climate change. Now, for years, it was flat-out denial, flat-out denial from those who who disputed it, uh, disputed the scientific evidence. But that is changing. On YouTube, for instance, a platform that has actually cracked down on people making money off of climate denial. Uh, or climate change now, there has been a huge shift. Uh, of course, uh, Google's owned by Alphabet. YouTube is owned by Alphabet, the parent company of Google. So the nonprofit center for countering the nonprofit center for countering digital hate has used AI 
to review transcripts of nearly or more than 12,000 videos from the past six years on 96 YouTube channels. The channel has promoted content uh, that undermines the scientific consensus on climate change, that human behavior contributes to long-term shifts in temperature and weather patterns. That's what the report says that they've released on this. And it said it found that climate denial content has shifted away from false claims that global warming is not happening or that it is not caused by greenhouse gases produced from burning fossil fuels. And instead, because those are banned, explicitly banned from generating ad revenue on YouTube, according to Google's policy. So where once they would reject it outright, now they've shifted to a different approach, one which attempts to undermine, uh, not undermine climate science, climate science by casting doubt on the solutions. Instead, the report found that 70% of climate denial content on the channels it analyzed last year focused on attacking climate solutions as unworkable portraying global warming as harmless or beneficial, or casting climate science and the environmental movement as unreliable. And that's up from just 35% uh, five years earlier. So we've seen a huge shift in this. Um, And it's an interesting one. Again, it's a new front that's opened up on this long-standing battle. Uh, Basically, hey, climate change is happening, but there's no hope. There are no solutions, or the solutions don't work. Now, there is legitimate criticism of things like renewable energy and EVs. We can easily have those conversations, right? That's not what I'm getting at here. And that's open season. I mean, people are allowed, obviously, everyone's entitled to opinions on these things, no matter what. And uh, there are questions about how renewables work, what they look like on the landscape, so on and so forth. This is different. This is different. This is a concerted effort by people who's, I mean, let's be honest. I don't, it's not that I don't believe in good corporate citizens, but really they're there to make money, right? That's what they're there for. And if their business is a certain thing that, that people are starting to wonder about, then what do they do, right? They oppose it. That's the whole point. There's also a lot of people making money off YouTube videos, which is also an issue. Imran Ahmed. Imran Ahmed is the CEO and founder of, of the Center for Countering Digital Hate that did all this research and he joins me now. Imran, thank you. My pleasure. So just to to uh, start at the beginning, what did you set out to find? What was the thesis here when you went looking uh, to see what may have changed on that very popular platform? Well, we wanted to see how the narratives used by um, climate deniers have shifted over the last five years. And we used an innovative uh, artificial intelligence tool developed by researchers in the United Kingdom to study five years worth of content produced by climate deniers on YouTube. We're able to take thousands of hours of that content and then run this tool over over it. And what we found was really startling. We found that there has been a radical shift in the narratives employed by the climate denying industry, the people who back oil and gas and try to stop us taking action to deal with climate change, They've been shifting away from the old denial, denying that climate change is happening and that it's man-made, to what we've called the new climate denial, and that's trying to undermine solutions, science, and scientists. What does that look like then uh, in practice? What are, what are you seeing straight up? Some examples, perhaps, of where uh, the attack has moved from the you know sort of on the whole premise itself to the solutions, of which we know there are many that are out there, including renewables, EVs, you name it. Yeah, so, I mean, I I can give you two examples. One is, um, in one of the videos, we saw someone saying that, actually, if you wanted to have solar, you'd have to replace uh, oil and gas and fossil fuels. You'd have to cover the entire United States in solar panels. 
Now, if you don't know the science, that that's just someone making an assertion. They do so very confidently. They claim to be, you know, to be following the evidence, but actually, it's just demonstrably untrue. In fact, the uh, necessary footprint of solar would be exactly the same as the oil and gas industry already imposes on our planet. Another example is one saying that the lifetime production of an EV car is an electric vehicle in terms of CO2 is the same as for a gasoline powered vehicle. They claim that the supply chain for producing a uh, electro- electric vehicle is really significant and so produces an enormous amount of CO2. But that's just factually inaccurate. I mean, actually, it's been shown again and again in econometric studies that um, electric vehicles produce substantially lower CO2 over their lifetime than gasoline vehicles. And those are just two examples. Now, what are they trying to do? Of course, they're trying to overwhelm us, which is what they always do, um, disinformation spreaders. They know that making up a lie, well, it takes no effort. You just have to say something bananas. And so they try to overwhelm us with nonsense knowing that we have to put in time, effort, expertise and resource to fact check it. And what we're seeing is that these themes are becoming the dominant way that they seek to um, avert action on climate change. How do you differentiate then from what is legitimate criticism, perhaps? I mean, there's conversations to be had about where what your energy mix might look like, how much of it should be renewable, how much of it shouldn't be. Uh, How do you differentiate between what is sort of fair comment and what what is essentially disinformation? Well, I mean, just to make the point that over time, it should be possible for us to completely transition away from using fossil fuels as a source of energy towards renewable energy. But the way that we've done that is by using a classification developed by these researchers, these researchers that we've been working with on this study. In their classification, they have a number of, they have five major categories of climate denial and then lots and lots of subcategories so not just looking at the memes, but looking at the themes that are most prevalent, that are most common um, amongst climate deniers. And we can show for each one of those themes that they are demonstrably untrue, um, that the facts support something different. Now, the other way that we can tell that these people are doing so deliberately is that these are we looked at 100 climate denier channels. These are people who've made an industry. In fact, even worse, they're getting revenues from YouTube for these videos, for producing them, for generating controversy, for generating people's engagement. They're actually making lots and lots of money, millions of dollars we discovered in our study for the content they produce on their channels. And they are, of course, rife with climate denial content. You looked at YouTube only, right? I mean, I understand that this sort of language has permeated other social media platforms and so on. Uh, But this was really specific to YouTube as far as your research was concerned. Yeah, this was a specific study looking at YouTube. You know, in, in one respect, we, we're we very thankful that YouTube allows for this kind of research. I mean, all platforms should be transparent. The truth is that if speech is free and if people want to publish things, then they should be willing to, you know, have people read it, see it and be able to and have critics be able to study it and analyze it as well. So YouTube is a slightly more transparent platform than others. For example, uh, TikTok is very opaque. It's very difficult to find out what's going on there. It's very difficult to see to find out what people are seeing. Uh, Facebook and Instagram similarly, and of course X is, the, which used to be known as Twitter, is increasingly the most opaque of all platforms because 
they have made it very expensive for academic researchers to study the data on their platform. And as I know, uh, all too painfully at CCDH, um, Elon Musk is now taking legal action against a range of groups, including the Anti-Defamation League, you know, which studies anti-Semitism, uh, against Media Masses for America and against the Center for Countering Digital Hate, which I run. When you look at, uh, in terms of, I gather there was a change in policy at YouTube that may in some way not necessarily have have necessitated this shift in language, but might have helped uh, promote or prompt this change in language, at least what you found to be quite a, a radical change in language, because I think you, you compare uh, the differences between five, six, seven years ago and now, and the difference in the language used is stark. Yeah, I mean, l- let's just put some numbers on on the changes that we saw. Over five years, what we saw was... In the in five years ago, a denial of anthropogenic, which means man-made climate change, has gone down from two-thirds of all narratives produced by climate deniers to less than one-third now. And um, the new climate denial has risen from one-third of all climate denial five years ago to two-thirds now. Um, in fact, things like uh, attacking solutions has gone up radically from 9 to 30% of all of the climate denial narratives. And YouTube, you know, YouTube has in the past, because Google, which owns YouTube, claims to be a green company in response to our studies and to pressure from environmental groups. They have in the past said that they will no longer monetize. That means place ads on, nor will they amplify, which means that they won't they won't allow their algorithms to publish content to more people than would see it normally. So followers can see it, but they won't republish it into other people's timelines. They won't do that for climate denial content. The problem is that they only cover the old denial and not the new denial. So part of our recommendations are that Google extended their ban on ads and their ban on amplification, giving a megaphone to these people to the new climate denial, because that's that way we can starve them of the income that so many of these grifters, liars and um disinformation spreaders are, are are reliant upon so they can produce more and more and more of their videos. Imran Ahmed is the CEO and founder of the Center for Countering Digital Hate. We're talking about uh, some research they've done, uh, diving in really into YouTube and the kind of language that's used there. Of course, YouTube, an incredibly popular video platform. And uh, they were looking into specifically climate denial content on the channels that they analyzed, about 100 of them, and found that there'd been a huge shift in the kind of language being used away from pure denial of man-made climate change towards an attack on the solutions as being unworkable. You may have seen it yourself over the past while. Uh, We've also been talking about where do you differentiate between what is disinformation and what is legitimate critique of some of this stuff, right, which which exists exists out there as well. uh, Imran, when you look, we look at what should be done then, because I guess there's always there's the free speech content uh, content and all this that 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 pops up, um, and there is a fine line I think between attacking climate solutions and and disinformation. Uh, what would you tell listeners or listeners out there about what they should be looking out for on YouTube these days and how to tell the difference? Because people have legitimate critiques of this stuff and they're you know wedded to them and they like to see these reinforced. But where do you see uh, that line drawn? Well, let's start off just with what the platform can do, what YouTube, which is owned by Google, can do. Now, absolutely, people have free speech and they have the right to post whatever they want as long as it's within the rules of that platform. Every platform has its rules. But no one has a right to be paid, especially if you're publishing disinformation or nonsense about climate. No one has a right to be paid for that. And no one has a right to be handed a megaphone for it either. 
So what we are suggesting is that platforms should follow their own guidance and their own claims and that they should not put ads on content that is denying the scientific consensus on climate change, the most pressing issue affecting us today and the one that will absolutely affect our children's lives more than any other thing happening in uh, happening right now. And so we are asking them to do the right thing. You can't claim to be green at Google and then be the world's biggest megaphone for climate denial and to be paying climate deniers for their content. So that's one thing. But the second thing is what we can do, what those of us who are trying to work in good faith to protect our planet for ourselves and for our children and for generations beyond and look, the story of this study is actually, there's two stories here. One story is one of success. We won the battle on persuading people, on showing the evidence, on explaining the science to show that man-made climate change is radically changing our planet and that it's caused by the burning of fossil fuels, the release of CO2 into our atmosphere, carbon dioxide. And that's because scientists have worked really hard over years and years, not just scientists, journalists, um, advocates, you know, the people from the climate movement, politicians as well, and others. And that's kind of part of the part of the secret to how we can fix this, the, the new problem that we've got, which is the cynical shifting of narratives by climate deniers. Let me tell you why I use the word cynical, and I really do despise their cynicism. They don't care about the science. What they care about is stopping action on climate change. The fact that they can move from five years ago saying man-made climate change is invented and a lie to now saying, hey, guys, look, it's, it's real. But you know what? The solutions don't work. So there is no hope. That is the most cynical shift in narratives you could possibly hope to see. And I think that the solution is found in the success that scientists found in persuading people, in showing people the science behind climate change, which is that we now have to do the same efforts to show people that hope is possible, that climate solutions are available to us. They will take some political will. They will take some effort. They will take some coordination, discussion, debate and action. But it is possible to avert the worst ravages of climate change. And I think there's two really important stories that come out of this study. When you look at who YouTube, I mean, this was part of the concern that was, I think, prompted the study in the first place was the audience as well, the audience that consumes uh, YouTube videos and general TikTok videos as well, obviously. But you're also looking at a very fragmented media market uh, and, and a certain proportion of the population watches a lot of YouTube. Yeah. And look, YouTube is one of the most popular social media, if you want to call it social media platforms in the world. It's really a short form video platform that algorithmically decides what you're going to see. So Google, YouTube control what you see on that platform. They control what recommendations you get. They control what happens, what what um, video plays after you've played one video. And they have been promoting the most contentious content, the stuff that sort of keeps people arguing and staying on to find out what new nonsense is being published next. Ironically, it's stuff that's more controversial, that, that, that gets more attention, that gets more visibility than stuff which is just stating what everyone knows to be true. Um, and I think that we, you know, we have a real responsibility to future generations to make sure that our information ecosystem is protected from disinformation, which is just as dangerous a pollutant as CO2 is in our real atmosphere. 
Imran, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. My pleasure. 